This is the Circulate Podcast, broadcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. The, the fundamental difference is that as a manufacturer, you, you have this ongoing relationship with the customer. It's not just about everything focused on the sale of that product and getting, you know, once you've got the sale, it's their product and you, you know, there might be a bit of aftercare, but largely it's, it's out of your hands. With a product service system, you have this kind of ongoing discourse. of Design's Rich Gilbert describes product service systems, an increasingly prevalent business model that redefines the relationship between businesses and their customers, could have radical implications for the use of resources and could be a key part of the circular economy. In this podcast, my colleague Colin Webster catches up with Rich and G, director at Enzo Tyres, a young company based in Iceland who already employs a product service model. Uh, or we make it with higher um, uh, quality raw materials, which are designed at the same time, so it's a mutual benefit, to extend the, the performance. So not only do we extend the durability of the product, so it lasts longer, but at the same time the performance is increased. Later on in the show, we'll also hear from Natasha Frank, founder of E.ON, a business that aims to be the Netflix for women's fashion. We'll explore what advantages these new business models have over traditional approaches, how to make a success of them, and we'll ask what challenges face innovators in this space today. But first, Colin asked this question, what exactly is a product service system? Uh, well, the clue's in the name, really. Uh, it's, it's part product and part service. You know, and the integration of, of the two into, into one offering for the consumer. So something that it has to involve uh, at least a bit of hardware, I think. Um, so I think of that um, in things like Dollar Shave Club, where you're, uh, you're getting subscriptions to razors and consumables delivered as part of the service. Uh, things like streetcar, where you're paying access, paying for access to cars, you're getting uh, you're getting performance, you're getting a service, and you're getting some hard- hardware kind of embedded in that. Um, it's quite a big spectrum of what uh, what is entailed in that. I'd say some key elements are that you're not owning uh, that product. For me, that's a kind of uh, a, a red line. Um, that there has to be. Some hardware, we're talking about things like Netflix and virtualized services. Uh, and for me, they sit in a slightly different category, um, but there's not any, any physical product involved there. Right, so the, uh, most people watching this will know what Netflix is or Spotify. And I've always given those as examples of what a product service system could look like. But I think what you two were both telling me earlier was that maybe they don't quite fit the model of a product service system. Is that right? And I, well, it depends where you draw the line, really. It's, some of it's kind of semantics of what's, what's included and what's not. But for me, it, it's, uh, I think of this in terms of, uh, from a slight hardware perspective, which is probably my bias because I'm a kind of product designer by background. Um, but we were talking about things like Love Film, where there's a, a service that you're, you're sending out, you're receiving DVDs as part of a, a kind of ongoing subscription plan. Uh, 
versus just going to uh, going to a high street shop and, and buying discs. So uh, yeah, that for me was product service system. Whereas a completely virtualized thing, it becomes uh, purely purely digital in its delivery, um, and that that to me is is just in the service category really. Okay, so I mean we're building up a picture of what a product service system looks like if we had. Uh, a list of check boxes. One is physical product. We reckon that's part of that. And when when there's a physical product that's doing the rounds, that say I'm the company who owns the product, and you are my subscriber or user, whatever it happens to be, at some point I'm going to want to get that physical product back from you. Yeah. How, how does that mechanism work? In in lots of different ways. In in you know, that's the kind of reverse logistics challenge of uh, you. How do you how do you get your hardware back again? I suppose what what you've touched on there as well is that the the fundamental difference is that as a manufacturer, you you have this ongoing relationship with the customer. You know, it's not just about everything focused on the sale of that product and getting. You know, once you've got the sale, it's their product, and you, you know, there might be a bit of aftercare, but largely it's it's out of your hands. With a product service system, you have this kind of ongoing discourse. You're you're kind of continually trying to deliver a great service to them. So there might be. Um, you might be upgrading that product, you might be uh, taking it back and fixing it, providing some new functions. So you want to, to streamline that process of being able to interchange products, being able to get things back, being able to uh, continuously make that service better over time, because that's ultimately what you're going to start competing on. Once you've got lots of product service systems competing, it's the quality of the service that uh, makes you kind of win in that marketplace. And let's talk about the, the wins and the whys because um, many people will be asking themselves, why should they subscribe to a car, a washing machine, whatever it happens to be, instead of owning it? Because for a very long time, I guess we've been convinced, if nothing else, that ownership is, is the pinnacle we should be aiming for. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think uh, we're always trying to find, you're trying to find the place where it, it's, it's a, lo a logical decision or it's uh, an easy decision to go for a product service system because it's, Maybe it's cheaper. Maybe get rid of the upfront cost. Maybe um, the reliability is better. Maybe it's kind of getting rid of some hassle for you. Um, but I kind of on on paper, product service systems are amazing because you know there's there's for a consumer you can get access to a better product for a lower price point. Um, for manufacturers, you're getting much greater kind of utility out of that product. You're getting this ongoing revenue stream from your customer. But it begs the question. Why are there not more product service systems mm -hmm. if it's so great? Uh, and I do think we've we've kind of got a, I suppose we've got a history of buying. We've got a kind of uh, a culture uh, based around purchasing. Really, that is historically, I look back at like growing up and the the kind of uh, the key things that you're you're kind of getting as you're growing up. You uh, you you get into the habit of buying the the kind of uh, and it's. Some of those things become very uh, important status symbols. They're mm -hmm. important. They're kind of reflecting you as a person. You're trying to uh, communicate how, how, who you are through these things that you've um, through the things that you own. So the, 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 what gets interesting is how how can how does that change over time? And we're we're actually talking in the studio the other day, the other day about whether that journey uh, into consumption has changed a little bit. Because I was thinking about when as I was kind of a teenager, sort of rites of passage of getting a CD collection. Saving up and buying a nice stereo, uh, buying a car, things like that. They're kind of big life moments, but they're based around purchases. But now a lot of those things don't really exist because you, you don't buy a CD collection. You have Spotify. You, you, far fewer people are, you know, people are living in cities. They're not buying cars. Uh, 
even things like buying mobile phones and stuff, people aren't, people don't buy them anymore. They're they're on they're on contracts that they see as kind of um, it's a monthly payment. Someone's looking after it, and at the end of that, you'll get rid of it and get a new one. So that kind of I wonder whether we're starting to see the change of um, kind of an emerging subscription mindset. It's people getting used to um, more comfortable with uh, subscriptions and ongoing payments and access to things rather than ownership. And at that point, you probably start to interrogate the value that's that's giving you a lot more. I think we're in a post-consumer age, effectively, where you know if we if we treat our, our users effectively as value adds it's it's a totally different dialogue and and i think for millennials in particular and uh, people who necessarily haven't gotten the uh, i mean many different emerging markets you have different um, values on ownership and and so there's the opportunity now with products or services to to inject a you know certain vitality into the old industries that have always relied on on, ser- on products basically being sold and Disposed and 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 quite then tried to quicken that up, make it default uh, uh, or, or fail a bit earlier than than usual. So we're now at the cusp, I think, on on some interesting changes. And 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 the question is really for companies, established companies and startups, is how do you embrace that change? Um, because uh, there are definitely opportunities, but the challenges is that it all becomes much more upfront. You have to take a, a very active, proactive decision upfront. To, to buy a, something as a service rather than buying it as a product because the default that we have you know, from our great consumer economies is that we're all consumers. We're, we're made to eat as much product as we can. But in the, in the B2B market, mm. uh, I don't want to come onto your specific product very, very soon, G, but in the B2B market, is it not the case that it's more commonplace that you see product service systems in operation. Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the best example of that, which everyone tells, of course, is that you know, Rolls-Royce sells hours rather than actually jet engines um, because it's more cost-effective. We see that uh, as well in our industry, tire industry, which uh, where uh, truck tires are often are, are, are taken back and are provided effectively per mile. But you don't see that often in the consumer space. It, it hasn't trickled down as much because... Um, the bedrock of many major companies is still listed, you know, listed companies in particular are still based on this kind of quarterly revenue streams that they need to kind of keep going. And, and turning to a circular model is, is, is a, you know, not only a, a revolution in their business plan, but is a revolution to their shareholders. So it's hard to change, besides all the legacy issues of, of changing from one model to another. Sure. But it's happening. Do, sure. you, do you think some of that is... I, I look at the kind of the difference between B2B and B2C and you... I wonder whether there's uh, just a kind of rational and emotional side to that as well, that you want to, when you're buying, uh, you're looking at long-term benefits uh, as a business and you're making very rational, um, carefully calculated decisions. You know, you're sitting down with a spreadsheet and you're working out your, the, the, the whole lifetime value of this kind of uh, product or the kind of value of this depreciated, depreciated asset. Uh, as consumers, yeah, we, we, we shop with our hearts and, oh, this is interesting. Oh, this is yeah. different. Oh, this is a bit, yeah, a bit shiny. And it's like, well, will this be about long-term value? Well, you don't think about that. You think about, about the kind psychological, of... psychological uh, uh, release that you get? Something, a positive psychological Absolutely. Feel? It's, you know, retail therapy. It's mm-hmm. all those kind of things that we've kind of, uh, again, that we're culturally a bit embroiled in. That you, we, we are a bit, a, we're a bit predisposed to new things because they're kind of interesting and different, mm. and you know, and there's there's something there's something going on there that you know, we're just kind of 
uh, intrigued and attached to, to the, that pace of change. Uh, and I often, often think about this in terms of uh, you know, we've got a bit of a kind of predisposition to short-term thinking as consumers that we're really not very good at kind of thinking about long-term benefits versus short-term gains. It's like the classic example of like New Year's resolutions of kind of like, right, this year I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna run a marathon, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this, and then it's like Tuesday evening, it's a bit drizzly, and you're like, oh, actually, no, I think I'll just watch TV. It's mm-hmm. like they kind of, you know, are, what we know is good for us in the long-term versus what's fun and immediate and exciting now uh, doesn't get equal weighting. So it's access over ownership. It's an ongoing discourse between businesses and their customers, and it should aim to provide a better performance at a lower cost. But how does it work in practice? Colin invited G to next explain how his business is putting together a product service proposition. What what we're uh, delivering is is clean tyres designed uh, for electric vehicles and we provide them as a service to those owners or users of those electric vehicles um, with the ultimate goal of, of, of making tires circular. And, and when we do talk about... Uh, they really are, no? Well, <laughs> it is actually quite funny because, yeah, they're circular in appearance and, and, and shape, but not circular in, in, in content. Um, and we, we, when we started looking at, at this um, industry, we saw that there are so many inefficiencies Within it, but there's, it's embedded with the um, the product, how it's designed from day one, and and, and how it's used, which um, can be improved substantially. Um, and when we looked at how it, which market could the best improvements actually be delivered to, in particular, it, it was a very apparent that it was with electric vehicles, because electric vehicles, of course, now are growing as exponentially. We have um, uh, the future is going to be electric. Uh, quite aggressively. Uh, there are country, countries out there looking to ban the sale effectively of fossil fuel driven cars uh, in the next 10 years, looking at Holland and, and, and uh, Norway, uh, the German government as well is looking at it. So there's been this revolution for the electric car uh, now for, I would say, for the last 10 years, coming from a very, very small uh, incremental changes and then suddenly this explosion. Uh, but the, when you look at the tire industry, it's still stuck in, in, in the old world. And we didn't see any disruption in that space to bring about the, the innovations that have happened in, in chemistry and molecular technologies uh, into, the, uh, into the improving effectively what is now this, this growing market. So we uh, are looking in particular at delivering then this, this, this disruption into the, the tire industry. And do and you see the Enso tyres as adding a great deal of value to electric vehicles? Um, Absolutely. Because we can tailor the tyre to the particular electric vehicles, we can um, have improvements, for example, in range, with range anxiety be one of the, the key things that stops people from actually acquiring an electric vehicle. And, and that re- allows us effectively to improve the vehicle externally without actually having to change anything with the vehicle itself. So an add-on benefit to any kind of electric vehicle by, by uh, using better raw materials, cleaner raw materials at the same time, that we then can, once the, the product has been provided as a service to the user onto that vehicle for a set amount of, of period, uh, we can then take that product back into our portfolio and reuse the raw materials uh, uh, ourselves and, and create a new product out of that as well. When you say a new product? 
Uh, so we produce the tires back into tires again. So the tire becomes a tire again. So Absolutely. The, the tread or whatever dies on, on the tire over time. Is Only about 15% of the tire is actually used during uh, its uh, life cycle. 85% uh, is then left over. So what do you do with it? It's, it's highly um, uh, refined um, product that then has effectively an afterlife that usually ends up being about either they're burnt for energy, which releases uh, harmful chemicals into the environment, because uh, tires have, have known toxins and carcinogens, uh, or the tires are used for uh, football fields or pavements, which again uh, runs the risk of le leaching out the same toxins into those uh, local environments. So when we look at, at how we design the tire, we, we look to design the tire so that effectively uh, whatever happens to the tire, it, it won't uh, cause any environmental harm. Uh, second, also, because we are providing a service model, we can design a tire that is, has longevity in mind so that we can pro provide uh, or we make it with higher um, uh, quality raw materials, which is designed at the same time, so it's a mutual benefit, to extend the, the performance. So not only do we extend the durability of the product so it lasts longer, but at the same time the performance is increased. And when it comes to electric vehicles, the performance is in particular measured by range. So if, if you have an electric vehicle and you would like to uh, extend the range of the vehicle, you have two options. You can either get a better battery, you can drive a bit slower and more efficiently, or you can get a better tire and, and keep the same battery and the same driving habits. Um, Enzo, you, Enzo Tires, then, um, a customer, whether that's an individual user or, um, I don't know, a large company, um, they don't pay upfront for the tires. And this is quite a crucial point about product service systems, isn't, isn't it? That the cost is spread over time. Absolutely. Uh, the, the challenge is that you, you have to take upfront certain key decisions from the customer standpoint, and the company also has to take key decisions upfront of how it provides that service. And, and for the customer, of course, he has to effectively be educated or see the benefits on very clear-cut basis why he should choose a service rather than a product. And this goes to all product service uh, business uh, models is that the, it can't be so complex for the customer that he has to make a, a very educated decision. I mean, he has to educate himself to a high level. But there should be enough um, awareness with the customer to make the right choice. So, so uh, price, of course, is very much a, a factor here, is that uh, we, we're strong believers in that the, the end price to the consumer cannot be uh, substantially higher for the same amount of use. So uh, we, we structure our proposal and our proposition to the customer so that the customer doesn't end up out of pocket in the end with the same amount of use as he would with a, a competing uh, high quality product as well. But at the same time, of course, when you provide it as a service for the company's sake, you, you don't get that upfront payment from the customer when you, when you sell them the product. You, you get it over time or over a, a set amount of use. This puts strain, perhaps, on and a business. And that strains exactly yeah. the, the, the question. You still have to purchase the raw materials. You still have to manufacture the product. You have to deliver it to the user. You have to market it. You have to provide all the, the essentials, effectively, to get it into the customer's hands. But you get paid over a longer period. So financing and, and financing structures now become very, very important for products as a service. It, 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 it is actually the backbone of whether a product service model actually works. So without the right kind of financing structures behind it, uh, especially when you're looking to scale, it becomes very, very hard um, to bring a, a substantial change to any industry unless you have that backing. 
Um, but at the same time, when, when we discuss this with, with funding entities and banks, uh, there's a lot of appetite uh, for these new models because what in return you get as well is that you get the, the ability for customer engagement over the long period. So it's not just a one-off sale, but you have this long this engagement with the customers. And, and what we're looking effectively with Enso is to engage very closely with our customers. And, and, and that's why we call them really value users, because uh, our values with Enzo should chime with their values, we hope. This conversation was originally recorded at the 2016 Disruptive Innovation Festival, an online event that showcases the latest ideas and technologies that are reshaping our global economy. You can find out more about that at thinkdiff.co. But next on our agenda, Colin dug a little deeper into some of the challenges of shifting models, asking about the risks involved in switching from a buying and selling model that is making money right now to the product service concept. Yeah, I, th I think the big fear as well is are you cannibalizing your, your already healthy sales by doing something different? You know, if you're making money selling, selling products in a, in a kind of uh, normal retail model and you switch to a product service system, do you, do you jeopardize that current business uh, by, by launching a new service? Uh, and does that have a, a, a kind of Financially, that can that can lead to very different cash flows. So you know, it could, that could be quite a rocky transition. But equally, um, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of companies look at that from a you know, why why um, why move away from that model when it's working for them. Um, so I, and I think there's um, an element of, of trepidation because people aren't necessarily uh, geared up for that kind of these new customer relationships, uh, these kind of new new design briefs that they're writing for themselves, that you know, you're creating hardware that makes this, uh, this service work. And yes, you can, you can make these services work with uh, existing hardware, but they won't work as well. Mm. Um, so there's, there's, an element of, um, there's an element of new R&D that you need to get into. There's an element of new skills uh, internally in your company that you need to develop. Um, but equally, you, know, you, you look at all the rewards as well. Think about oh, this, all this kind of the, the you're talking about long-term communication with customers because they're, they're, you're constantly engaging with them. Whereas in, when you're in retail, you, you sell them something, then you have to you have to fight for that sale all over again. I, I saw a quote recently, actually. Well, you know what the quote was from 2014. It said, "The sh the share of worldwide manufacturers by 2015 using performance-based service contracts will jump to 65 percent." Do you get any sense of of how close that uh, estimate was? It's hard. To, it's hard to gauge, isn't it? I think we're uh, we're probably both slightly biased. <laughs> so, I get a sense that 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 is that's the direction we're travelling in. That, you know, that there's a a swell of people that are just kind of much more used to subscriptions, much more used to kind of different payment models, uh, mobile transactions, yeah, the technology buying things makes in different ways. Easier, right? Yeah, technology is a massive enabler for this. Yeah, you know, all of the kind of like. Uh, streetcar and city bike, and uh, like Barclays bike and Believe, all of those things were 
very much enabled by mobile technology. Uh, you see even things like the um, Amazon popped up. The, this is a, a while ago now, but they just next to the buy button, they put the subscribe and save button, mm. uh, and it's just a little sort of, you know, feature update that meant that you could rep you know, make repeat purchases. Yep. But it's just kind of slipping into the mainstream where it's like actually, oh, it's a little bit cheaper if I subscribe and you know, all these things that kind of get you just out of the habit of assuming that uh, buying is the default. So this is episode five of our podcast series. We've reached the halfway point. We'd like to thank those of you who have been listening and sharing the podcast series so far. We really believe that increasing the exposure of these positive ideas and innovations can have a positive impact. So please continue to share on your social media and with your friends and provide us with any feedback you have in the review section of the iTunes app or via the Circulate website. But don't go anywhere just yet. While it may be obvious how product service approaches can work with something as functional as a tyre, what about the ever-changing world of fast fashion? Well, that's exactly the challenge that our next guest is taking on. Natasha Frank is founder of E.ON, a company working in downtown Manhattan that aims to be the Netflix for women's fashion. Here she is explaining how the model works. So basically, um, looking at the fast fashion movement, the Zara's, the H&M's, and this growth of disposable clothing, and the fact that women and consumers are wearing a lot of their items, almost 80% of their wardrobe, one to three times, um, very low wear, which is a waste of money and resources, of course. Uh, so what we are looking to do at E.ON is build in a service model where we can actually increase wears of clothes, and by E.ON taking responsibility for the item, actually upcycle and recycle the item at end of life. So if you're familiar with any sort of rent the runway business model or any sort of rental model, the challenges of those businesses are is that the consumer generally views them as a service that they should use on special occasions only. So there's a very high customer acquisition cost because your customer will use your product one or two times. You're also handicapped in that you can't infiltrate the woman's everyday wardrobe, which is where a lot of the economics really are, right? To have your customer using your product on a daily basis. Um, so through a subscription model, we basically reduce the transaction nature of a clothing rental company and transition into a service model. Uh, we also enable customers to have the experience of fast fashion because their wardrobe is constantly on rotation, but actually increase the wears of clothes and upcycling and recycling. Uh, also, from an, an economic perspective, we enable women to access products that they couldn't generally afford. And from the logistics perspective, we're really focusing on using RFID and item level tagging to basically enable the uh, same kind of intelligence as you see in the supply chain on the reverse logistics side. Um, RFID and item level tagging basically enables us to efficiently track um, each and every product um, at an item level um, much more efficiently than with a barcode. And it's these kind of tech, um, tech efficiencies that will make these kind of businesses profitable. Um, <clears throat> it also enables us to start experimenting with the um, 
new growth of products brought online or smart apparel with a, a cloud-based identity. Uh, we are working with one of the first RFID threads, uh, which is basically an, a tag, an RFID tag in the form of a thread. So it's um, invisible and not noticeable to the consumer, so they won't be bothered by it, uh, won't feel the need to remove it, and it can actually survive dry cleaning in the entire life, cy life cycle. Uh, this technology is relatively new, um, so that kind of intelligence um, really facilitates this and makes this business model economically feasible. We're also using that RF same RFID tag to upcycle and recycle the apparel at end of life. Um, so basically, one of the biggest barriers in textile recycling is material transparency. So it's the fact that when this shirt arrives, the recycler doesn't know the material content. So what happens today is someone will pick up the material and give their best guess. Is this cotton? Is this polyester? And they'll sort by that. Well, the World Economic Forum has now identified RFID tagging as a way to automatically sort and separate. So now when the products come in, the, our recycling partners are able to read, okay, this is actually a cotton sweater and this is actually cashmere. And those RFID tags basically carry the recycling intelligence and the information necessary for recycling, um, which is where the fully closed loop system starts to get manageable with um, intelligent asset technology. I see the benefits of um, taking that approach, of course, Natasha, but it, it involves um, more collaboration. I guess it involves a little bit more infrastructure as well that, well, not infrastructure per se, but it involves the technology being at the recyclers, right? How are they going to know that they should be scanning this piece of clothing, but not this one? Yeah. So basically because we are taking the items back at end of life, we're renting our garments to Susie and Barbara and Sarah, right? And then when the garments are finished, they're coming back to us which enables us to then share the garments with textile recyclers that we're working with who have this technology, right? Because we actually wanted to, you know, we wanted to make this end of, end of life intelligence more available, but we realized that in order to do so, you're right, you need to have mass market change where all the recyclers have it. But by actually changing the business model so that we are the, we are responsible for disposal, we can pick which recyclers uh, to partner with for this. We're also working with the brands that are partnered with on the platform to help them close the loop. So let's say we're renting a um, helmet laying cashmere sweater. If we have that cashmere sweater at end of life and we're able to upcycle it and recycle it, we can actually work to get that cashmere back to helmet laying so they can actually reproduce a new cashmere sweater from that where it becomes a fully uh, closed loop system there and actually helps the brands um, use recycled materials from their very own products. Natasha, I guess the big question um, a lot of people would have for product service yeah. systems, uh, those, those skeptics who might be watching this might say to themselves, it sounds like a lot of work from your side. And I guess it's a question to um, you as well, G. Um, it sounds like a lot more work for your side because there's new technologies that are coming in. There's new partnerships that you have to develop. Um, there is that ongoing communication with the customer. These, yeah. All of these things, and there's a myriad of other things I probably haven't thought of, all come with costs, right? Staff time, technology time, equipment costs. So how on earth can a, a business model like this make money? Yeah. That's a great question. So basically, it's RFID. You would, right now, 
Zara puts an RFID tag on every single item that they rent or they sell, right? Um, any rental company uses a barcode. They're all using item level tagging technology. It's just that the systems that they have actually make it more expensive for them to operate. So when you sell something or you're building an inventory system, you will be RFID tagging your items anyway, right? So we would have to do that no matter what. And any rental business looks to increase the efficiencies around that. Um, so the RFID actually for us um, ends up being really a, um, an, a vast improvement in efficiencies and not an increased uh, cost. To your because it would, be used, it would be used in any point of sale business as well. So you're, you're kind of surfing on the, the wave of current technology, I guess. You're just making more intelligent yeah. use of it. Exactly. We're just using it for the whole life cycle. We would be paying, we would be t paying to add that RFID tag anyway, and we're just saying we're going to use that intelligence throughout the entire life cycle. Right, and, and E.O.N. is uh, it's not open for the general public um, to subscribe to Close just yet. I, I believe um, you've only been in operation for a very short time. You want to tell us how old you so, are? We're launching, um, we are in the world of fashion, so we recognize there's some air uh, exclusivity and personality um, to building a brand. So we actually launched by membership only um, here in Manhattan, and we have uh, 35 women on the platform basically who subscribe, receive three items a month um, and exchange at will, exactly like a Netflix and DVD kind of system, right? But just swap those DVDs for apparel. Um, so it's been incredibly well received. The women love it. They feel that economically they're getting more bang for their buck because they're able to wear higher end brands, have more product. And basically from an efficiency perspective, from a lifestyle perspective for them, they don't have to dry clean and maintain. So we have built all that into it in it in the way that it actually feels more like a luxury service, um, even though it's an um, economic decision for most of them. I'm going to ask a final question of uh, all of us who are sitting here today. We, we've heard, obviously, from enthusiasts, we've heard um, examples of uh, product service systems and we've heard the bigger picture examples as well um, and all the benefits of them uh, such that the customer gets a more durable product that um, perhaps you would have a higher quality product than you could afford, that you don't have the high upfront costs, perhaps it fits with the more ethical environmental um, side of things too. Um, so let me ask you this first question first, Rich. Mm -hmm. Those are all the upsides we've talked about and there might be a couple more. What are the downsides? What's, what's holding back the product what are services? The downsides? I think maybe it's a, a more, depending on what you're doing, depending uh, what the, what the the product service system is, I think it can be a more complex development route because you're playing this sort of chicken and egg game with product and service. You know, if it's something that's enabled by new hardware, uh, then you've got some new technology you need to develop, but you've got a service you need to develop at the same time. You kind of want to prove the service out, but the hardware might be enabling the service. So it, it, it adds a layer of complexity uh, in that development process that's... Um, that's maybe not there with a the kind of standard retail model where you kind of you've got a product you're making and you do some testing and you go and make it. Um, so it's a, a slightly more complex process. So very quickly for you, G, why is that complex, more complex process worthwhile? Well, I mean, if in in the case of Enzo, actually, the the process is is a lot easier. Have you ever tried to buy a tire? I guess, yeah. <laughs> it's it's not necessarily an, an easy process, and 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 it's about you having to go somewhere 
and, and the guy behind the counter effectively sells you what he wants at the price that you need to buy them. It's a, it's a product that is not necessarily based on any kind of passion. People, it's a, it's a utility product. Uh, it's a product that often is compromised in, in some respects um, because there's so many different qualities, there's so many different characters behind the product. The, the, what we bring to it is a simplification effectively of that. So um, the point here is that we will design the, the product that can be verified as being extending the range of that particular electric vehicle, that we can verify that it's clean, we can verify that you don't pay more for it than you would a, a, a comparatively high-end product as well. So, so those things are verified up front, but the, the onboarding of that customer relationship is complex um, uh, because it does, it's a different dialogue. But I, luckily in the tire industry, we already have a very complex onboarding. Uh, so one final question for you then, Natasha. Will we all be subscribing to fashion in the next decade, do you think? How, how big is this going to be? Yeah, I think that with apartments getting smaller and smaller in the world too, people don't really want to or have the room to hold on to a lot of stuff. So I think there will be more changes in seasonality and people will have a lighter lighter stock at home, obviously always carrying the staples. Only only about 2% of customers or you know consumers right now are involved in some form of consumer rental service. So it's a very small percentage of the market right now. Um, we do see it changing. The Google search increase for rental of apparel has gone up 250% within the past two years. Um, so consumers are thinking about it, searching it, looking for it, um, and it's becoming much more comfortable to have that kind of service as well as perceived really as, as a luxury and an asset to the customer lifestyle. So I think a much bigger percentage, but um, maybe you men will always hold on to your basic blue button-ups. <laughs> <laughs>